Well, good evening. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 this evening. Matthew chapter 22. Let me say thank you for the opportunity to come and be with you. I know some of you, and it's a wonderful pleasure to see you again. And for those that I don't know, I'd love to get a chance to meet you and get to know you in these next couple of days. I do love Mike and Larissa. It is a blessing and uh, really an honor to be able to be with you. I'm thankful for Nick. Those uh, songs this afternoon, this evening, really challenged me, especially as we prepare to consider this theme. If you just think about what we sang about and think about how the Lord used those truths to calm the anxiety that filled the hearts of the apostles in the upper room, it's really, it's really astounding at what a wealth we have before us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. As the Lord told the apostles for the first time, he would be leaving and they could not follow him. They were devastated. And they were, they were just engulfed with fear and worry. What will we do? And the Lord's response was, well, the comforter's coming. And beloved, you and I who are in Christ, we have the presence of God dwelling with us. We don't have to drum it up. It doesn't have to be worked up. The presence of God is there, not only to comfort us in difficult times, but to strengthen us to apply really hard truths in really important settings like relationships and like marriage. So, brother, thank you for those songs. They were really a challenge and encouragement to me. I hope they were to you as well. But Matthew chapter 22 is where we will start for the next few sermons. I think there's four of them. And as we walk through this, I want to try to do it sequentially and build something here that will hopefully help you. Uh, I was born and raised in L.A., as Mike said. I went to high school, actually, in Northern California. And uh, one day when I was walking out of high school as a freshman, I was walking home I so was walking along the road, and I found on the ground, actually, I was just right outside the school, a watch. And I didn't know what kind of watch it was. I just thought, you know, here's a watch. So I, I reached down to pick up the watch, and as soon as I did, I, I picked it up, and I, I looked at it, and I immediately went like this to make sure no one was around me, because I thought that I had come upon this incredible treasure. And I got to where I was totally alone. I looked at it again, and it, it said Rolex on it. And I thought, wow, how lucky is this that I found a Rolex on the ground right here out in front of the school. I thought, man, this is amazing. I now am the owner of a Rolex. I'm going to make sure everyone I know knows I own a Rolex. But before I do that, i got to get it working. Because the problem was it wasn't working. And so I did a little diagnosis. I found out the problem with my brand new free Rolex is that the battery was dead. Now, Rolexes don't operate on batteries. Ones that are made in China operate on batteries. I didn't know that, but the jeweler at the mall made sure I knew that in such a thorough, humiliating fashion that I'll never forget the, the feeling that rushed over me in that moment. So after that, I went on a quest the rest of my life. I've always been looking for things that are fake. I, I wasn't raised in the church. I wasn't raised around religious people at all, really. I had no context whatsoever. So I came into the church as an adult, and I've always had in the back of my mind sort of this fake Rolex meter. I'm always looking for what's false and what has some reality to it. And when it comes to something like what we've gathered for here tonight and for these next couple of days, this is a wonderful opportunity for sort of Chinese Rolex-type approach to Christianity. But what I would love to see in my marriage with my wife, and I would hope you'd want to see with your marriage as well, is something of reality. So the reality of that is, is that it will be up to all of us to take these teachings as far as we want to take them. Because to the degree that you and I apply these truths, our marriages will flourish and glorify God the way he intended. 
Now, if what you're searching for is merely a feeling to overwhelm you, and this idea that that overwhelming feeling will fix your marital problems, there's a theological word that I'd love to give you for that. You are absolutely out of your mind. That's not going to happen. You might feel good, or worse, you might feel bad, feel like, oh, there's all these things I've got to change, but that's not going to help you any more than it does on December 25th when you're standing on the scale realizing my resolution needs to be to lose 20 pounds again for the next 10 more years as you've done for the 10 years previously. Just feeling bad won't be enough. What we've got to do is make a decision that we are going to work hard to apply these truths. Now, I want to share with you a rule that our elders have in our congregation at home. And here it is. It's the you never know rule. The you never know rule. And here's how that works. As an elder, I have the opportunity, especially as a shepherd and as a biblical counselor, to have insight into the lives of those people that I shepherd that goes beyond just settings such as this, where we have small talk, talk about our upbringing, talk about our families, things that we like, or maybe just in that few moments on Sunday where we say, hey, hi, how are you doing? I'm actually getting to the nitty-gritty of what they're facing in life. And all of our elders recognize that when we're there together in sort of the assembled body, we're not getting that, that deep sort of raw reality that's going on behind closed doors at home. So as you sit here, that's true for you at your table, but it's true for me as well. I don't know what really is going on with you. Perhaps this is the last step. Perhaps for you, this is not a visit to the primary care physician. This is the trauma doctor, and you are ready to pull the ripcord. Someone in this room could have already contacted a divorce lawyer. Someone in here could already have begun to make those plans for a next spouse. Or maybe you've just been so discouraged and despondent and beaten down because of what seems to be just a lack of advancement, a lack of grace, and a lack of love that, that you're just sort of numb to it all and you don't really care a whole lot anymore. You've just sort of carved out a new existence. Well, for everyone here, regardless of where you are on that scale, and even as we heard in the beginning, perhaps maybe you're not yet married or perhaps you're a newlywed, these truths here are God's gift to each of us. Not, not my sermon, right? The Word of God is. Uh, the Word of God is. These are God's gift to help us to accomplish His purposes and His goals for our marriage. Marriage is not merely just a place. For years, I believed this. So before you come to Christ, you know, just understand that marriage is just for your happiness. Okay, so we get saved. We know, okay, so it's not just about our happiness, right? There's got to be a more spiritual answer. So it's for my holiness. Yeah, marriage is just for my holiness. Well, that's true, except when it's not the only part that's true. Because marriage isn't just for our holiness. Marriage is a gift that God gives us in order to persevere to the end. Because you see, you and I have come to Christ in the context of a fallen world. And our church are called the Genesis 3 world. We live in a world that's marred by, stained by, and ruled by the effects of man's selfishness and blame shifting in the garden. It's affected everything that you know Everything that you've ever seen, everything you've ever felt has been directly affected by Adam and the sin in the garden. And life in that world isn't easy. It's hard. My life is dynamic. Your life is dynamic. You have a heart. According to the Bible, uh, Proverbs chapter 4 says that our heart is sort of the seed of our whole life, right? The issues of life spring forward from our heart, and so we're supposed to carefully guard it. The Lord says over and over that sin comes out of the heart. What comes out of our mouth comes out of our heart. So we're these hearts that are entrapped in these bodies that are frail and fallen. 
So we've got these dynamic hearts that are always wanting, they're always desiring, they're always fighting, they're always shifting. And then we've got them inside these broken down bodies that are deeply affected by the fall. They're dying. Paul says they're decaying. He says the outer man's dying and decaying. The inner man, though, it should be on a different path of being renewed. So you've got this heart. It's in a body. And then this body's in a broken world. And that broken world is, is filled with things that are not only not only difficult, as in the sense of sickness or disease or hurricanes or plane crashes, but also sin. People don't just sin against things, they sin against other people, and so people sin against us, and we sin against other people. And so when you take all three of those elements together, you've got to realize that we have dynamic lives that are always changing, and when you take two people living that life and put them together in a marriage, there's going to be sparks and it's going to be difficult. So I believe that God gave us marriage not only in order to make us holy and like Christ, which we'll talk about that tonight, but also I believe he gave it to us as a merciful gift because this life is hard. And as we wait for the return of our Savior, as we wait to go to be with the Lord, he gives us a glimpse of this incredible love that you and I will know experientially forever in heaven in a limited form with our spouse. My prayer is that over the next couple of days as we walk through this, you'll begin to see maybe a, a smaller or a bigger glimpse of what that could be for you. Tonight I want to start, though, at the foundation in a sermon or a, a study entitled Love Comes First. So let's look at Matthew chapter 22, and we'll consider verses 37 through 40. Very common text you should know quite well. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, and we'll talk about how it applies to our relationships with our spouses. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Let me go ahead and read it. I'll re I'm reading out of the New King James Version. So if you have a different version, there'll be several points where I might point out what your text may say, but just so you know where I'm at. Listen to what the Lord said. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Father, I ask for your help and your mercy. I'm thankful, as Nick led us to remember this evening, that you are with us. Father, you, you have never left us. We don't even have to pray for you to, quote, be with us. It would be impossible for you not to be with us if we're in Christ. Tonight, Father, help us to have a, a greater sense of your presence in our marriages and in our hearts as we consider likely difficult things tonight. Strengthen us. You say, Philippians, that you give us not only the power to obey, but even the desire to obey. So help us tonight, Father, to, to want to do the hard work that we need to do in order to glorify you with our marriages. So we entrust this time to you and and Father, I'm weak and frail. I need your help as well. Father, without your help, this would be nothing more than information. And, and Lord, we need so much more. I need so much more. So help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you're here and you're part of likely um, one of the most biblically sound churches in the area. And so likely you know what the Bible says about certain doctrines, marriage being one of them. And so you might already be thinking Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. I know those texts, Mark. I sort of know where you go. Well, hey, you've been married a long time. How well has that, 
How well has that done in solving all of your problems just knowing what they teach? Just think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul paints a picture there of a biblical marriage, as it were, of a God-honoring, godly marriage. And that marriage he pictures there is a marriage that I would love to have and, and I'm aspiring to have, but if I'm being honest, I don't know that I always have that marriage. Paul describes a marriage that is Christ-centered, Christ-focused. It's, it's all about the glory of God. It's just dripping with grace and patience and forgiveness and forbearance and love that's overwhelmingly selfless and always focused on the other person. He goes on and on and gives this picture of this beautiful mutual submission. And then he gives this incredible secret in chapter 5, verse 32. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And then we sort of get what really amounts to a gut punch in the idea that your marriage is supposed to look like the way Jesus Christ relates to the church. Jesus is never bitter towards the church. Jesus doesn't hold grudges toward the church. Jesus doesn't have this long list of offenses he's sort of holding back and then a hair trigger ready to bring those out of the closet at just the slightest misstep or even perceived misstep by his bride. Jesus is never selfish. Jesus is always present. Jesus is always gracious. He never has a harsh word. Jesus always believes the best. And I sit back and think, boy, that does not reflect my marriage most of the time. If you're here tonight and you're going to be honest, I would imagine you'd have to say, if you hold up the model of Jesus in the church, you'd have to be like me and say, I've definitely said things to my wife that I I obviously regret and I've been convicted of, but I know Jesus wouldn't say to the church. I've thought things about my wife and my marriage in different contexts that I know Jesus would have never thought about me or about the bride of Christ. I've done things. I've made decisions that that I know were expressly selfish that Jesus would never make as it relates to the church. And so on the one hand, you might walk away from Ephesians 5 discouraged, like I have been many times as I've walked down that road. Well, I I can't do that. I, I obviously am failing to fulfill this picture that Jesus has given to me, so what in the world am I supposed to do? Unless you take just a couple more steps down that road and recognize that Jesus and the gospel are not only the model for our marriage, but they're also the power and the answer. Because if we go back to this picture of Jesus and the church, we're talking about a Jesus who loves the church. Something that we talk about a lot, our elders talk about a lot, and we talk about a lot in our times of pastoral prayer with our church and during times of corporate worship is how God is patient with us. And beloved, I, 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 just, I, I just melt under that idea because I need God to be patient with me. The fact that God is forbearing towards us, the, the fact that God is not short, short-tempered towards me, these are things that describe the Lord. The fact that he forgives us of our sins and that he loves us. Well, beloved, if you're in Christ, those are things that he's done to us, but those are also things he's empowered us to do to others. B. 
because I've been forgiven by Christ, I am now free to forgive you. Because I'm loved by Christ, I'm now empowered and I have a model in order to begin to love you. Because I have a selfless Christ that serves me and ministers to me daily, I am now not only shown the way, but I'm helped in order to do that to you. And that's the secret to marriage, is understanding the relationship between the gospel and the marriage that God has given us, the relationship between the marriage of Christ and the church and the marriage I have with my spouse. So if you're in Christ today, that, that means there's hope for you. I don't know where you are in your marriage. I started out sort of heavy, and I did that because I despised those fake Rolex-type of experiences in church, and I don't know you, but I am certain there are people here that are in a bad way. And for us that are in a good way, perhaps these are encouraging things that will help protect you and strengthen you in order to ensure you don't walk down those roads or when you do, you stay for only a short visit. But if you're in Christ and you're way down that road, or perhaps you're standing on the, on the, on the first step of that road, if you're in Christ, there is hope for your marriage. There are no hopeless marriages outside of Christ. If that were the case, that would mean that the church would find itself at times in a hopeless situation with her Savior. Because that's impossible through the gospel. It's also impossible for you and I to be in a hopeless state in our marriage. My relationship with Christ has more to do with my marriage and my day-to-day -day interactions with my wife what I say to her, what I think about her after I hear her saying things than I would imagine. And I want to spend our first few moments tonight considering this relationship. In fact, I want you to think about your marriage this way. Your marriage and what you say to your wife in the car, what you say to your wife laying in bed or, or how you respond to your husband on text or, or whatever it is you're doing in the context of that marriage, that is likely the clearest window into your relationship with Christ that exists in your life. That's the point of our text tonight. To love God is to love others. To not love others is to not love God. It seems so elementary, but tonight I pray that it'll be a help to you. So let's go back to our text, Matthew chapter 22. We'll look at verses 37 through 40, and I want to talk about how Christ describes devotion to God and devotion to others as at the very top, really rather at the foundation, the very bottom of life in his kingdom. And I want to do that by describing two types of love. The first one is simple. It's love for God. Love for God. For God. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now, this is the great commandment. You know that already. It's just two direct quotations, a little bit of altering from two Old Testament texts. I'll talk about that in a moment. These stand out in our Christian experience. We know these. We hear these in the Great Commission over and over in the Christian life, and here's how we tend to hear them. You're supposed to love God more, and you're supposed to love other people more. But typically, that's where that ends. And so in my mind, I'm left with this idea, well, yeah, I want to love God more. I'm not exactly sure how to love God more because I kind of love myself a whole lot. Loving myself sometimes gets in the way of loving God. And it's even worse when it comes to loving other people because I love myself far more than I love other people at different times. So how in the world do I advance down that road? I hope we can cover that 
and hopefully put some feet on that tonight as well. Jesus is describing here what was a problem, and really it began in Matthew chapter 5, and it's the problem of the religion of the day. It was fake. It was like that Chinese Rolex watch I found that day in Torrance, California, outside of West High School. It had form but no function. It, it, it had appearance but no reality. They did their prayers. They outwardly sang. They worshiped. They gave. They served. But they did not love God. You can do everything that happens in a church and not love God. I hope you understand that. You can outwardly appear to be the, the strongest Christian around and not really love Christ and not love other people. And that's at the heart of what Jesus was getting at here. They didn't really love God, and he's going to prove it by pointing out what was obvious to others. They didn't love other people. And because they didn't love other people, he was able to prove they didn't actually love God. Jesus is answering a question. Let's back up and look at the question. Look at verse number 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Of course, they think they're going to be able to solve this problem. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, their purpose here was not to get an actual answer. Their purpose was to stir up trouble, like one sibling trying to throw another one under the bus. Their whole purpose was to get Jesus in trouble here. Of course, you understand in this ancient day, their religious system had taken what the Bible actually said and just increased it exponentially. Over 600 laws they extracted out of the Old Covenant. And of those laws, they divided them up into two simple categories, serious and non-serious. And no one agreed on which one was which. And so this question was almost sure to start an argument. It was sure to start a controversy, and that was the point. Sometimes when I read the Bible for the first time, and even now as I read the Bible, I wonder, are the, are the Pharisees actually interested? Are the Sadducees serious? Do they really want to know? And then it, it's just a few lines later, you realize, no, they actually don't want to know. But they ask this question, maybe you think that Jesus would give one of the Ten Commandments, or maybe they would have thought he would have given one of the Ten Commandments. But instead, he gives a verse they all knew cold. I mean, we're talking a wanna-level verses here. They not only knew this verse, they repeated this verse multiple times a day. Every day they were required to do it. They knew this verse, but Jesus is going to prove they didn't know this verse. And there is a way to have the word of God in your head and not actually have it in your head. There's a reason why we're admonished by the psalmist in Psalm 119 to hide the word of God in our heart that we wouldn't sin against God. So, so that that word is not only just trapped in there, but that our life begins to reflect it. And now we're able to defeat temptations and see what is calling itself good is actually what God calls it, and, and that is sin. So they knew this word, but they, they didn't actually know this word. So Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God. Here's his answer, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now we'll talk more about those divisions in another sermon. Let me, let me just say for these purposes, the purpose isn't necessarily to talk about the different aspects of love right now. Jesus just making one simple point. They didn't have a true devotion to God. And that's all he's pointing out here. They, they didn't have a wholehearted devotion to God. They didn't love God. They didn't, actually, they didn't actually want to live for God. Rather, their religion reflected the religion of our day. And that is that God existed for them. And that's the gospel that's most common in our day in modern churches. I hope you understand that. The gospel that Jesus died for you to accomplish your goals, achieve your dreams, and reach your potential. And essentially all it is is Old Testament false religion. 
God does not exist for us, beloved. We exist for him and for his glory. And that's what was being proven here. That's what was being essentially contrasted here. One author writes, wholehearted devotion to God with every aspect of one's being, from whatever angle one chooses to consider it emotionally, volitionally, or cognitively, this kind of love for God will then result in obedience to all he has commanded. So Jesus was talking about that which was internal. I used the word earlier, reality. He was talking about reality, not something that was superficial. And that's what you and I are called to have for the Lord, an internal, real love for him. And there's something about being devoted to God that that begins to alter the way that I think. And let's take this now to our relationships. We'll do a lot more of that in a minute. But when I'm really devoted to God and my desire is to honor him, let's go back to this. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the apostles approach him. They say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Now, they knew how to pray. They would prayed every day of their lives, pretty much, and they were typically these rote prayers. They learned from their rabbis or from their parents or from other people in their community, and their prayers were essentially empty and meaningless. But when they saw the Lord pray, they saw something completely different. He prayed as if he was talking to someone and someone who was listening and someone who was interested and someone who loved him. So they said, Lord, teach us how to pray like you pray. And Jesus said, well, I'd love to teach you how to pray. Here's how you pray. And he gave them three primary priorities. Prayer needs to start with worship. It's about his name. Jesus says, listen, you've got to begin with this foundation of the holiness of God and praising and adoring him. Not only praying about the name of God and the holiness of God, but he says, now you've got to focus on the kingdom of God. And it's so easy in prayer to focus on our kingdom. And so Jesus right away says, no, 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 it's not just about you. It's about the kingdom of God, both in a sense eschatologically in the future as the kingdom comes, but even now as the kingdom exists, praying for others. And then it's the will of God, not just our will. We often conceive of prayer as mainly just convincing God to to adopt our will. But rather in prayer, we're doing the opposite. We're surrendering and learning what it looks like to surrender our will to his will. And there's something about praying that way that's analogous to loving God this way with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. When I'm loving God this way, when I'm devoted to God this way, then now his priorities are my priorities. His will is my will. His desires are my desires. And that's super important because at the end of every argument with my wife, or at the beginning, rather, of every argument with my wife, is, is, is a moment where it was about my name and my kingdom and my will. And I didn't get what I wanted, and as a result, I snapped or I lashed out, and a conflict ensued. Jesus is teaching them, even in that model prayer, what it looks like to be devoted to God. And why should we be devoted to God? Well, because of who he is and what he's done. And I fear, beloved, listen, I fear that most of the time you and I face this relational drift, we, we, we really rarely recognize what's at the foundation of it. Because if I have my conflict with my spouse up here, with my wife up here, my beautiful wife who loves me and did an incredible act of charity by marrying me 22 years ago, if in some crazy moment I'm angry with her or frustrated or selfish or whatever towards her, at at the foundation of that is something that has to do with my relationship with God, not just her. I don't necessarily see that in the moment, and that's what the Lord is teaching us here. But if I'm focusing on my name, my kingdom, and my will, 
well, now if she, if she doesn't give me what I want or she stands between me and what I want, I'm, I'm going to lash out like a child would who wants to have something and dad or mom says no and the child throws a fit. Well, as adults, we throw fits all the time. They're just more sophisticated. But that's what's happening. It's an issue of worship. I'm not only worshiping myself and my idols, but I'm demanding that you and my wife and others worship them the same way. And if you fail to worship them, I'll act like some wicked Old Testament king and I will execute justice and judgment upon you. Being devoted to God sort of flattens all that out. And now all of a sudden I've surrendered my name and my kingdom and my will and it's about God. And so, beloved, when you and I neglect our walk with Christ, when you and I neglect the spiritual disciplines, our marriages suffer, but you and I would never think it's that. In our congregation, I know it's probably true here as well, as elders, number one thing, the number one thing that we admonish our Christians, our, our fellowship to do is to daily allow the Word of God to transform their thinking. And to the degree that I neglect the Word of God, I will begin to think according to my name, my kingdom, and my will. And now I'll act out of that. But the more time I spend in the Word of God and the more time it begins to shape my mind and my thoughts and my life and my affections, my desires, now all of a sudden I'll begin to, hopefully with God's help, act out of those new things. Jesus is teaching us to be devoted to Him. And we should love Him in this way because of what He's done. But we often neglect the Word of God and as a result we begin to forget who He is and what He's done. It's going to the Word of God. It's fellowshipping with the saints of God. It's worshiping God. And worshiping God is just seeking to glorify Him in anything and everything that we do. But through corporate singing, through times of prayer, whether it be in the secret place, whether it be intercessory prayer, whether it be watchful prayer, whatever it is, through all of those means, I'm remembering and I'm drilling into my heart who God is and what He's done. And now all of a sudden, I'm beginning to behave out of those things. You know that experience. Pastor Mike preaches and you walk away convicted and in your heart you're saying amen. And amen means that's true. And in your mind you're saying that's true for me. Jesus did that for me. That's who I am and that's who I was and look what he's done. And you have that feeling but it's fleeting. You know that feeling if you're in Christ. You've had that. The problem is is that it fleets right out of our hearts, right out of our lives, and by neglecting the Word of God or fellowship with the saints of God, now I become established in that place. And and I don't think about God a whole lot. It's not on my mind what He's done and who He is. What's on my mind is who I am and what I need and what I want. And now I'm going to operate that way. Beloved, this is why it's so important to be in the Word of God and to be in fellowship with God in prayer, in worship, and with the saints. Listen, this is important. The people that are here sitting next to you are God's gift to you to help you persevere to the end. God has given us one another in the church as a gift to make us more like Christ. But how will that happen? By encouragement, Hebrews chapter 10, by them coming alongside of us and stimulating us to good works and love and good deeds for Christ, but also through reproof and rebuke and admonishment. Hey, I I saw that you talked to your wife like a jerk the other night. Please help me understand where in the Bible I can find that type of treatment. Help me understand how that glorifies Christ. If sarcasm isn't their love language, go another route, right? And just say, hey, listen, I, I don't know if you saw this, but in love, let me just say, I, I, what I heard from you was selfish. 
Now, if, if you're not in a, a situation where you're cultivating relationships in this church where you can receive that, now, there's probably a lot of givers in this room, right? We're all givers. But if you're not a receiver of that, well, well let me say something that you probably wouldn't expect. You're missing out on one of God's greatest blessings. Because one of God's greatest blessings is the body of Christ refining us to make us more like him. And if we're not receivers and we're just prideful, then we're never going to receive that blessing. We've got to be devoted to him. A second type of love he describes here is love for neighbor. And here's where the rubber hits the road. He, he answers the question. This is the first and great commandment, verse 38. Verse 39, and the second is like it. He's like a husband answering questions that were never asked, right? He was only asked one question. What is the first commandment? So he answers that question, but then he answers it with a second answer. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus is not giving two answers, though. He's giving one answer, but it's being illustrated. He's giving one answer, and he's showing the relationship between the two. Really, one of them is connected to the other in the hardest thing that you and I will do. And that's faithful, spirit-empowered practice. The Old Testament, this comes from Leviticus 19. There in verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the, the Jews would have understood that verse as well. It wouldn't have been on the tip of their tongue as Deuteronomy 6.5, but they would have known this as well, and they would have known the context. They would have seen this move from, hey, don't be this grudge-holding, bitter person that's unloving towards your fellow Jewish person. Rather, be someone that really loves them and cares for them and is selfless. They knew that theme. In fact, you may not know this, it's a theme throughout all 39 books of the Old Testament, really. There's a theme of love for neighbor there. And so when Jesus does this, he's not trying to give a second answer. He's really trying to show that to love God is to love others. In fact, if you know the first epistle to John, and I know Mike's preached for this several times in his ministry, a few times I know of, you know that John makes this point very clear. If you don't love other people, you don't love God no matter what you say. If you don't love other people, you don't love God. We live in a world where you are what you say you are, but the Bible, you see, doesn't allow that. Because according to the Word of God, you are not what you say you are. You and I are what God says we are. And if we fail to love other people, we are not His. We are not His. Jesus is making a very simple point here. If you love me, you will love others. In fact, that's the way it will be evident that you love me. If you want to know what it looks like to be devoted to God, you be devoted to others. You want to know what it looks like to be devoted to God? Now in the church, we often, hey, here's how we score, folks, right? And Mike gave me a list of your scores, and I have that. I've reviewed it some. Uh, no, I'm kidding. He didn't give it to me, emailed it to me. But um, we, we typically score people on how busy they are. And being busy in the church is almost no indication of how much someone de is devoted to God. In fact, what I've found over my years of ministry is sometimes the busier someone is, the more confused about the gospel they are. Because while they might be well-intentioned, somewhere in the back of their heart, in their mind, they're earning their salvation. And they're doing something to commend themselves to God. As if now when they stand before God in judgment, they'd be like, 
I, you were probably looking forward to this day, God. I know I have been. Here it is. I'm here. Lay it on me. I got a big head already. It'll hold all the crowns, right? I'm ready to go. But true devotion to God according to Jesus is seen not merely in busyness, but in love for others. But what is he saying we must do? He says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does he mean by that? Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus actually answers that question of who our neighbor is, right? And you know that. And in our setting, your neighbor is the person sitting next to you, part of the congregation. Your neighbor is your coworker your family members, your friends, those people you know. But let me, for our purposes, take this even closer to home. Who is your closest neighbor? If your spouse is not your closest neighbor in the first application of this text, I don't know what could be. My spouse is my closest neighbor, and therefore, the very first place I am going to reveal my true devotion to God. So... The state of my relationship with my spouse will always be an accurate reflection of my devotion to God. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the point that he's making. My love for God will be seen in my love for my spouse. Now go back to this pattern prayer. His name, his kingdom, his will. When I love God, when I'm devoted to God, all of a sudden all of my idols hopefully begin to somewhat weaken, though I'm continuing to create them and I'm stoking those fires. But, but now I'm starting to think through God's, God's eyes. I'm starting to think about God's purposes and God's, what, what God would want me to do. What does God command me to do? What does the Bible say? And now I'm starting to think that way. But, but if I take it a step further, when I'm really devoted to God and I understand the way that he loves me, now it frees me up of something that I do a lot of. It frees me up from looking to other people, especially my spouse, to give me what only God can give me. And see, beloved, a lot of our frustration in marriages is because we're looking to our spouse to give us what only God gives. And our spouses are incapable of giving it. Now, sometimes in some really broken situations, one spouse will be able to provide for another spouse something, and they'll provide that for some time, and that spouse should be getting that from the Lord, but as soon as that is altered or cut off, all of a sudden now we've got just a plague of brokenness and conflict in the marriage. But the reality is this. When I love God and I'm devoted to Him as I should be, and I'm now understanding the way that He loves me, I'm thinking in these terms, now I'm not looking to my wife to make me feel good. I'm not looking to my wife to make me feel important. I'm not looking to my wife to make me feel needed and wanted. All these things the world tells us that we need and, and that are a part of our life. It's interesting. The world keeps telling us all these things that we need. Each of them are what the Bible says are our biggest problems. And so when I love God, now I'm free to come home and my wife doesn't have to be God to me. I'm free to love her. Listen, devotion to God makes your spouse easier to love. Devotion to God. My, my wholehearted devotion to Christ makes my wife easier to love because now I'm not using her. 
It's so easy. Listen, I've been in ministry for a long time, and even as a pastor, it's no different. As a pastor, as a church member, it's no different. It's so easy to have the appearance of being godly and, and solid Christian, have great Christian family and all these things, and have all kinds of just messed up, wicked, unbiblical, out-of-order stuff going on in the home. In the marriage, parenting with the kids, all those things, it's so easy to happen. And one of those things that are just just so common is where we're just essentially using our spouse to give us things. This, by the way, is something you may not be aware of until you're ready to divorce. And then here's what you hear. Well, they, they just don't give me this anymore. They're just not this anymore. She's changed. Listen, husbands, if you did not know your wife was going to change, you obviously have not been paying attention, Right? Your wife is going to change, and so are you. We're going to change in a hundred ways through the course of marriage. We're going to change physically. We're going to change spiritually. We're going to change with our desires, with our affections, the way we treat people, and that's because of our hearts, and then physiological, chemical, organic things change. I mean, so much goes on in the life that changes. If you're just looking to your spouse to give you something, and now she or he has changed, you're no longer getting that. The problem is not likely in them, but the problem is that you're looking to them to give you what God can give you and is the only one that should be giving to you. This is such an easy road to go down, but Jesus teaches us the devotion to God makes our spouses easier to love by teaching that the way I love others is a reflection of my love for Christ. So let's go back to our marriage. The condition of my marriage, how well I love my spouse and how much mercy I give to her, how patient I am with her, how forbearing I am towards her, how generous and kind I am towards her, how selfless I am towards her. I can fake those things to a degree. But if they're real, they're a reflection of what I'm getting from Jesus. And so in reality, I'm receiving all of these things from him and then I'm giving them to her. And I have found over the years, especially in 22 years of marriage, and I know many of you have been married much longer, and so you probably know this already, but I'm still trying to learn it, right? What I've found is this. When I stop before I respond to something my wife has said or done or start to think in my mind, and boy, I've conceived of lots of horrible things she's never actually done that I've just in my mind just assumed she's thinking and I can't believe she, I'm going to get back and I'm going to make her pay and, all, and, all, and nothing even actually was said or done or even thought. But when I stop and step back and take that thought and those those feelings and those impulses, those desires and that temptation, and I, I, I bring it over here and I let the gospel shine its light on it, all of a sudden, my demands begin to fade and I just slide off of that throne that I'd put myself on in shame and I get down and I'm like, what am I doing? My wife does not answer to me it's not about my kingdom. It's not about my will. It's not about my name. She's not trying to live to honor my law code. I don't have the right to execute justice when she breaks my law. That's not how this works. Her and I, we're on the same team. We're a part of his kingdom. You see, when you and I got married, something happened. 
Here we are, we're standing at the, the husband's ready to go. You're dressed in your tuxedo, rented clothing is always fun. The wife is over here, she's ready to go. The bride, the pastor's here, here, wherever you want to put them. And now as I'm coming together, Ephesians 5 teaches this, something spiritual happens, right? The two become one. We join into a covenant together and, and this wonderful thing is happening. But there's something simpler happening here. There's a mathematic equation happening here that we never talk about enough in premarital counseling. This is why we changed it. In fact, that this year in our church, we had a pre-engagement conference because we recognized by the time folks get engaged, it's almost impossible to solve the problems because now it's even worse because they're focused and now they're operating out of fear. Well, if I say this and she might not want to marry me and if I'm honest about this, he might not want to marry me. So we backed it up even further to pre-engagement to try to solve some of these problems. But there's a simple mathematical equation that's happening here. You have one plus one, and it equals two. But what's the one, and what's the one? This is one sinner plus one sinner. You know what that makes? It makes two sinners. And you know who you're most likely to sin against? The person that you can't, the person you can't fake against anymore, the person you can't convince you're someone that you want to be, the person that knows you for who you really are. When one sinner marries another sinner, you've got two sinners coming together, and in this fallen world, you're going to sin. And that's why this devotion to God is so critical. That's why understanding my marriage as a reflection of my relationship with Christ is the absolute foundation. The next few talks, especially tomorrow, we're going to talk about the dynamics of relating to one another in a fallen world and dealing with temptation to sin and all of these things. But the foundation is a love for God. So if you're here, Brothers, listen to me. If you're here and you've checked out, you've given up, or, or you found some new normal and it's not a healthy, God-honoring one, I want to challenge you specifically tonight to ask yourself this question. Are you really going to keep blaming this just on your wife? Or is there a place for you to step back and consider your relationship with God? And wives, I would ask you to do the same thing. It's so easy for me to be convinced that my problems are actually my wife's problems. But are you going to step back and say, you know, it's not just that easy where I can blame it on them. It's, it's something I've got to start with in my own life. And let me take it one step further. In our biblical counseling, our elders, when we do biblical counseling, we have sort of a rule there as well. The very first step of counseling, whether it be marriage counseling or any other counseling, the very first step of counseling is simple. It's always the gospel. Because if you don't have a full, personal, experiential understanding of the gospel, you're not equipped to do these things. And it may be you're here tonight, you don't fully have that experiential knowledge of the gospel. You've not been redeemed. You've not been born again. You don't know the closeness and the help of God. You don't know the forbearance of God. You don't personally know the patience of God, the care, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of God. You don't know that, so you have nothing to give to your spouse. Well, then tonight I would commend the gospel to you. I would commend the Lord Jesus Christ who lived so you and I could live and he died so you and I could live with him forever as those who have been redeemed. He lived perfectly for us and he died sacrificially in our place so our sins could be forgiven. If you don't know Christ, I would commend him to you. And I'm sure these pastors would love to talk to you about what it would look like for you to know him in a saving way. Let me end with a few thoughts and then we'll be done. 
The first one is simple. It's just a reflection of what I've said. Marital happiness or marital struggle are connected to your love and devotion of God. They're connected to your worship. Marital happiness or marital struggle are connected to your love and devotion to God. They're connected to your worship. You see, our marriages always start out good. They start out so hopeful and so happy, and you plan not for, bibli- or not for counseling. You don't plan for divorce. You plan for just wonderful things. But then the dynamics of the heart come in, the dynamics of a broken body come in, the dynamics of a broken world come in, and hurts begin to compile, offenses begin to compile, and now all of a sudden that thing that was so beautiful two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, now is absolutely unrecognizable. And you're ready to move on to something that's hopeful once again. I'm suggesting tonight that this, this problem at its heart of, of what you're looking at now, it's no longer the beautiful, hopeful thing you started with. At the heart, the foundation of that problem is your devotion to God. And to the degree you and I will restore that devotion to God, we'll experience that hope and really that, that beauty that I talked about in the beginning that God has intended for all of our marriages. As soon as we stop worshiping our own idols and forcing our spouses to worship us by meeting our demands and giving us what we want and again worship God alone, we'll find ourselves free to give and receive love. One author writes, I was helped by this, behind the struggles with poor communication Problem-solving or understanding the roles of husband and wife, there are struggles of poor worship. Remember, we were designed to worship the Lord and love Him most. If He's not the focus of our worship, then something else will be. Idolatry didn't work out so well for Israel, and it won't work out for us either. You'll find that worship is the underlying heart issue, while poor communication, problem-solving, pornography, and children are by nature byproducts of a heart worshiping something other than the Lord Jesus. And so much today of, of, of material for marriage is all about symptoms. It's not at the heart issue of the problems. If I just teach you how to be good communicators, what I might teach you to do is how to be more selfish and be better at it. What I might teach you to do is to win more arguments and in fact to make your spouse feel worse and want to worship you more. If all we do is try to help you overcome your financial issues or perhaps other issues that relate to physical things and we don't actually get to the heart, we've not really helped you. It all comes down to the level of our heart. And who are we demanding be worshipped? Number two, to have a mercy-filled marriage, you must know the mercy of Christ and experience it regularly. You must know it. I said that, but you must experience it regularly. Beloved, if you don't have a sensitive spirit, if you're the person that's like Adam in the garden and always blaming others or God for your sins and it's never your fault, if you, husbands or wives, always blame everything on your spouse or your kids or your boss or the refs or the umps or the president and nothing is ever your fault, beloved, listen, if you're professing to know Christ, you have a huge problem. You have a huge problem. 
Because that's, that's showing that you do not have a sensitivity to the work of the Spirit of God. We have in the modern church just absolutely missed the work of the Spirit of God. We have confused a feeling for a supernatural work. You can save me of people falling over. You show me people who face the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and they stand down the barrel of temptation and they choose to honor their wife instead of pornography. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't show me something generated by lights and smoke and music. Show me someone living for Christ and demonstrating the power of God by being selfless when they want to be selfish, by being kind when they want to be harsh. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you and I are not regularly confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, and experiencing that patience, that forbearance, and that loving forgiveness on an ongoing basis, if you and I don't know that, if you and I have developed this low view of God and high view of self so we're never at fault, we need to go to the Word of God and true worship of God and fix that problem. Because the more godly we are, the more keenly we'll understand who God is and who we aren't, and more keenly we'll know who we are and what we need. And as a result now, we are going to be more apt to look at our wife and say, this isn't just a a case of she violated my law, she's a sinner, she deserves payment. We'll recognize that's me with the Lord 10 minutes ago. How dare I look to my wife and give her what I would absolutely just, I would crumble under if God gave me a fifth of that. We have to know and experientially know the mercy of God to be able to give it to one another. And you say, well, Mark, I've been in church 20 years. I've had that sermon. Beloved, this is a sermon you and I need to apply to our hearts every day. A story I've told for many years, and, and I feel safe to say it because um, I'm going to leave in a couple of days and the person's not here. But I have a memory, I have a memory that stands out because Pastor Mike's been a wonderful friend to me and a huge help and a mentor for many years. But I remember one time that I, I heard someone say, why is he always preaching the gospel? This is almost 20 years ago. And at the time, I didn't fully understand really the weight of what was being said. The person who was asking that thought, come on, let's move on to deeper things, man. Let's get on to, let's talk about Revelation and the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and how all those interplay. Let's talk about the 70th week, man. Let's get beyond the gospel. And I didn't fully understand what was, what was at play, but now, 20 years later, there is literally nothing deeper than the gospel. And there's nothing more important for my marriage than the gospel. If you want to know how you're going to solve the problems in your marriage, dive into the pool of the gospel. Throw away the books from Lifeway and dive into the pool of the gospel. If you need redemption in your marriage, well, Jesus is in the redemption business. If you need grace and you need to give more grace, go to the one who invented it and the one who daily gives it to us. The gospel is everything in that sense. It's not only the foundation, but it's the end of the road. It's the middle of the road. It's all of it. Finally, when you love God and are loved by God, you are now free to love others in your family as God has intended. When you love God and are loved by God, you're now free to love others in your family as God has intended. Let me end with this thought and we'll be done. So now I'm working on being devoted to God. I read it here. Jesus gave me the great commandment. Now it's clicking. Okay, yeah, so I see this. To love God is to love others. If I don't love others, it's really betraying that I don't really love God. So Jesus is saying that that one necessitates the other. They're connected. 
So I want to work on loving God so that it will come out in the way that I love my wife. And the way I love God and the way he loves me should be the way that I love my wife. So I'm going to work on that. So here I go. I've had a, a hard day at work. Everything's gone wrong. Spilled my coffee on the way in. Found out I'm not getting the raise during the day. A couple of clients dropped off. Found out my car bills going to be $4,000. Found out my kid didn't get into the college I want to get into. Everything's just going wrong. And I get off late at 7 o'clock. I'm driving to this insane traffic on A1A that's worse than traffic in Miami somehow, makes no sense on earth, and I'm driving through it, and in my mind, I'm starting to paint this picture, and here's the picture. The king's coming home, and the king needs to be worshiped, and I'm coming in that door, and I, I just know that I know that I know that my kingdom is in order, and I absolutely know that all those elements are going to be there. Kids are going to be there. House is going to be picked up. They're going to be ready to go. They're eager to help serve the dad. Dad, tell me about your wonderful day. How can we serve you? My wife's got a wonderful meal, the meal I want, not the meal my cardiologist said I need. I've got it there waiting. It's ready to go. My wife wants to give me, she just spent four hours on the internet and just just absolutely do nothing, super cool, I'll take care of all the problems. That's in my mind. And here I come to the door. I'm just ready to be worshipped. I open that door, and all of a sudden, before I see, I hear and smell. The kids are screaming, and you can hear a fight carrying on. My wife's screaming in the background, and she's walking towards me with a plunger, and I'm smelling... What on earth is going on? Two bathrooms have overflowed. Your son did it. I'm leaving. It's your problem now. <laughs> what happened to worship? <laughs> so I'm guessing there's no dinner. And now the eruption and the explosion. But see, when I'm, when I'm loving God, I'm devoted to God now on the way home, as I feel this temptation to be selfish and to be, to be angry and bitter and harsh towards my wife, I'm, I'm, I'm immediately facing those temptations. I'm remembering what the scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 2. He, he's been tempted like me, so he stands ready to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. So God, I need your help right now. I'm tempted to do this. Please help me. I'm, I'm thinking about scripture. I'm, 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 I'm meditating on what I know to be true about my own heart in that moment. And as I walk in that door, I'm ready to go. And I see my wife in need. And I say, you know what? I love you. I've got this. Leave. And I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. But I know in that moment, the way for me to love God is to love my wife by serving her. And I can do that now. Because I don't have to have all those things. Because I have a Jesus who loves me. And he cares for me. And he's forgiven me. And he will never leave me nor forsake me and not one of his promises will be broken. He has gone to prepare a place for me and he will return and he will receive me to be where he's going to be. And so all this right here, it's not a problem. The Lord can help. Father, help us as we consider this really weighty picture of a foundation of a biblical home. Help me, Lord, to love my beautiful wife as an expression of my devotion to you. Father, we confess our failures to demonstrate a true devotion to you by seeking to separate these things up. Mm -hmm. Seeing our relationship with you is totally separate from our relationship with a wife and with our husband and justifying the way we treat them. But tonight, Father, help us to see these two as deeply connected. We want to love you and we want it to be seen in the way that we love each other. So, Father, work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.